Hello, this is Joel Porter, and on behalf of Steve and Kendall, I'd like to welcome you to the November episode of Motivational Interviewing and Beyond. This month, we pulled together uh, a couple of good friends and colleagues, Alan Zukoff and Chris Wagner, to talk about what would Carl Rogers think about motivational interviewing. Now, of course, he's been deceased for the past 30 years, so we actually have no idea what Rogers might actually think about motivational interviewing, but we did the best we could to try to explore motivational interviewing in a person-centered therapy frame. Um, The conversation went really wide. Um, There were some fantastic comments from the audience in in the chat. Um, I think we all learned a lot from each other. And we will keep thinking about this and trying to trying to explore and see where these uh, two very similar approaches uh, converge and diverge. Um, so um, we'll be back in January for um, another episode of Motivational Interviewing and Beyond. We're going to take the month of December off. And um, if you celebrate any holidays over the um, month of December... I um, hope you have a lovely um, holiday season or get a good break from work and um, take care and we'll see you in 2024. Okay, should we get going? Let's do it. Joel, what's the title of this webinar? Motivational interviewing, what would Carl Rogers think? Okay. Something like that. And. Joel, I suggested that we try and say simply up front, what is motivational interviewing and what is client-centered counseling? And that was the question which the rest of you just bucked, and I ended up having to do it, right, which I think is very unfair, okay? But I'm going to try now. Chris might be willing. Maybe, maybe you could just get us started. I'm sure we will all have plenty to say once the wheels get turned. I'll tell you what, Chris, since... Why don't I try with motivational interviewing and you try with client-centered counseling? But we just pause between them in case any of the others want to add anything to what I say or you, you know, and then to what you say. How's that? Sure. Okay. Give it a try. So motivational interviewing is a style of conversation. in which you adopt an attitude of curiosity driven by compassion and acceptance of this person in front of you or group, in which you clarify a direction of travel in the conversation or what we call a focus, and then proceed on the assumption that most of the wisdom is inside them and therefore evoke from them how they feel about this change, acutely aware that they often feel ambivalent, and then if and when they seem ready to talk about doing something about it, you might join them in a process of planning that change and offering up information and advice if that's something that they would appreciate. How's that? 
Okay, I tried. <laughs> I like your description of MI. I'm not sure if it covers all of what other people call MI. So what if, what if I tried this? Um, if I try, I try to boil it all the way down, MI allows us to sidestep or diffuse the cycle of pressure and resistance when talking with people who are ambivalent about change and helps them resolve their own ambivalence in the direction of change through focusing on and drawing out their own values, goals, and strengths. Love it. That's as, as succinct as I've been able to get about what I actually think MI is. I love that. Because you're also pointing to that whole issue of pressure and bypassing that issue of pressure. Okay. I wonder if we might, I don't know if you want to quickly do base versions of these or if we might elaborate, uh, expand this a little bit, stick with MI for a little bit. I don't mind. I'm wondering. Love to hear your thoughts, Chris. So, so yeah. So I have a couple of questions. Um, one is we say in the direction of change, but somehow a, what changes has to be established. And my sense is different people have different senses of how that comes about. Um, so that's one question. And Well, we'll stick with that one for the moment. If it's in the direction of change, how is change defined? What direction is that? And I could respond with one word, which is focusing, which is a, an activity or a task okay. where you try and reach agreement with the person about what that change is. think I think kind of historically motivational interviewing would focus on what the person wants to change how they want to do it when they want to do it and even if they want to do it and that's and 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 supporting autonomy has always been a big part of motivational interviewing for me um and a very appealing part of it so in, in some ways, motivational interviewing to me is is providing an opportunity for the person to decide what it is they want to change or have different in their life and come up with their own arguments and reasons to do that based on what's important to them not me coming in and trying to install these arguments and reasons on why they should change because of what's important to me. So there are or some feeling the need or feeling the need that it's my job to fix somebody. Absolutely. Um, and there are these ethical challenges in the process of focusing that can't 
often can't be avoided because I might sit with somebody and feel this is probably a worthy direction of travel. Mm-hmm. I can't honestly say that it's always about only what they think is an appropriate direction of travel. There can sometimes be potential for disagreement and the skill of focusing is precisely the ability to form a good connection and engagement with somebody such that you can raise a possible direction of travel and eventually agree. Okay. And once, and then if there is that sense of agreement, then you can proceed with uh, mining their wisdom, so to speak about it. Okay. So I love that. And I think we're already bordering on the topic of contrast between MI and client-centered or person-centered counseling, because I think the process you just just described, Steve, is quite different from the way a a person-centered counselor would conceptualize their way of starting and joining and moving forward with, with a new client. And doesn't that invite us now to try and capture what client-centered counseling is? Let me just make a mark about the uh, one part of that I want to come back to a little bit later then. Yeah. Because um, what I'm hearing you say is focusing involves developing a collaborative partnership to move toward a particular, in a particular direction, either toward a goal or toward an outcome or just forward movement in a direction, even if there's not an end goal defined. And it's an active partnership of both people then working together. And you said some of the skill is negotiating, finding what is this thing that we both feel we can work together toward. Is that correct? And it sometimes starts off a little bit vague, but there's agreement and then it can get a little bit more specific as the conversation unfolds. Mm -hmm. Black and white, we have a goal to work towards. It's often an unfolding, like a flower opening. But, like. but I would also underline that word negotiating. Yeah. Because again, I think as we're thinking about the the c- overlaps and contrasts between MI and, and person-centered counseling and a more purely Rogerian sort of method, I think that word negotiation really is a, uh, I would see it as a dividing line. As a dis- as distinguisher between the two methods, that's very helpful. A fella well, came. I think it's one of the most distinguishing. Hey, I just the only one, but a a distinguishing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, someone got referred to me today with a specific problem and walked in with that specific problem, and in the focusing process, we adjusted what that issue was and talked about something completely different, and I think more fundamental. But it was negotiated. It was negotiated with sincerity, authenticity, compassion, kindness. But it was completely different to the reason why he walked in and why he was referred. Sure. So it's a continuum. It's some, there's a sticking point. I'm going to name what I think the sticking point is, and then we can decide whether we want to hold that one for later. Okay. The sticking point being... 
programs having a goal existing before people have even walked in the door, right? Other people have walked in, but before a given client walks in the door. And a, a, a kind of sticky point being, what if we see something that seems beneficial for the client and they're not really so up to to focusing on that now? And I don't, I don't know that this is, Stephen, any of your work with MI, but I hear people talk about MI sometimes as, I use MI when I want to try to convince the client to do something that I think they should do or we think they should do or is better for them. Um, and maybe there's still a negotiation of then do we do MI, but the the impulse of direction is coming in. That's um, really unfortunate. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's swing back. So, Alan, you're going to – really have to help me with this or Joel, anybody else, but so client center counseling, classic client center counseling, first of all, I think was different things at different points, right? So it had a under Carl Rogers had about a 50 to a 40 year development period, 30 to 40 year development period. And it unfolded in time. So we can maybe talk about some of the differences over time, but the, the essence of it was as, as I understand it, um each person is a master of themselves or of their own life and uh, when we meet people they're not yet able to fully use that power to be themselves fully deeply and congruently because along the way they have met with conditional regard things that They've been shamed for, scolded for, et cetera, that created a sense of internal tension and um, a process of people kind of having an outward face and an inward experience that aren't always congruent with each other, saying things that they think others want to hear, um, for, you know, forbidding themselves from saying things that they, you know, maybe have gotten trouble to with before. Um and the process of client center counsel, as I understand it, is to meet somebody human to human and create a set of conditions in which a process can unfold of that person moving towards greater genuineness, congruence, and uh, what Rogers thought was a fully functioning person or what other people have talked about as being actualized. The so oh, I'll stop with that. So could I, if I could just add, I'm one sure you can do it much better. So I just, no, 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 not at all, Chris. I think every, I agree with everything you're saying. I would just add a nuance, which is just maybe an, a point of emphasis, which is, I think, um, and I, I think this is again, an important key for distinguishing person centered and counseling and MI is Rogers was very explicit that that lack of genuineness was not only about, you know, I'm I'm going to sort of be careful about what I say or how I express myself with, with intention. That what his view was is that people lost the ability to even be aware of their what he would have thought is their genuine strivings. That the processes of denial and distortion, which are defenses, in the classical sense of uh, classical meaning 
you know, psychodynamic sense of uh, things that happen without our full awareness, whose workings of which we are not fully aware, such that we often believe we are genuinely the person we present ourselves as, and only the malaise and anxiety and dysfunction and a broad sort of sense of stagnation and unhappiness with our life reveals that those distortions are pre- that that who I believe myself to be as well as who I present myself as is not who I genuinely am what I genuinely want uh and I think it's that that disjunction, that incongruence, is in Roger's term, you know, the technical term that that, from his perspective, leads to suffering and brings people, typically, seeking therapy and seeking help because without knowing why things are going so wrong for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just want to let you know my computer locked up, so I'm also scrolling through the transcript. But the essence, if I if I'm catching this right, Alan, is it, it, the incongruence is both. I always say that word strangely, but anyway, uh, from inside to outside, there's a difference, but also within that people get. I don't know that Rogers used the term compartmentalization, but that there are different parts of self that people have access to and don't depend, you know, based on these. I don't even know the language interjected kind of values or beliefs or. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Conceived values as, as. uh... So, so then as I understand it, Rogers believe that if you simply set up a condition and a relationship, and this is one of the places where it differed over the course of his career in which a person feels accepted, valued, heard and understood. Um, then those walls within and walls between will begin to disintegrate. The facade will will go away, et cetera. And the person will genuinely inhabit their being um, and be more of their true self. So again, different terms over time, but true self. And that then out of that, they will make choices readily that align with who they are and what their values are without needing us to do the work with them. That's very good. Or for them. That's or do right. the work for them. Yes. And so, so as I started thinking about this a few days ago, I was thinking, well, you know, it's the non-directive versus all the different words MI has had. Directive, semi-directive, directional, with goal, goal orientation. Uh, you know, the words keep kind of shifting, I think, trying to find what's the best frame of that. And it, it kind of came, my sense after reflecting a little bit was I don't really think that's accurate that I think Roger's work is non-directive about choices you know what people would do but he seems very directional to me on how people should be he has a very clear concept of what a fully functioning person is and a number of attributes and processes that go along with that Um, and in his work is that's the direction things are moving it's not a behavioral thing but who people are or how people are, I guess, more than who. 
And MI seems to flip that around to me, which is MI is really not interested in kind of how you are as a person who, you know, trying to even look at are there problems with that. It kind of accepts uh, at face value what somebody presents as their view of their life. And so it's non-directive on that part, but more directional on moving toward a goal and helping people define their goals. So I don't know if that made any sense. But. And can I raise a I'd be very interested to hear what Alan and Chris think about it, because for me, the two of you were the inspirations for this. So I've never had the opportunity of actually asking you, which is very arrogant, really. But we made a shift. Originally, MI was focused on addiction behavior change. Then it was focused on behavior change. And now change, not necessarily behavior change. Now, doesn't that bring MI in much closer alignment with client-centered counseling? And even growth now. Now, tipping yeah. the hat towards growth, in my review of the new version of the MI book, I didn't see a lot of development of that, but the door has been open to, to consider that as a yeah. future direction. I think that's a really, yeah, I think the, you know, the additional of that, of that, of, of the, of the word growth to the title and, and sort of the expansion of the purview of MI in that way was certainly something that I, I, I appreciated and, and was glad to see. Um, and I, I think at the same time, if I were to ask myself, when, when am I apt to, to do MI with someone? And when would I be apt to do something else, which would be, a, would not be pure person-centered counseling, uh, but a much more depth-oriented, exploratory kind of therapy? Um, the answer, the simple answer would probably be, if there's something that this person feels stuck in, wants help in changing or is considering changing if there is a target if there is a focus even if they come in and we redefine it and i really uh appreciated steve your opening example of the way a focus can become be renegotiated that what the person thinks is where they're stuck is not is often not where they're actually stuck and as you talk together with them, they begin to recognize or articulate. They thought they were looking for help with this, but what's really going on is something like I'm struggling with this. But even that, I, in those scenarios, is where I think I'm, I'm thinking of MI. And if someone's coming to me with much broader kinds of, again, a sort of a sense of malaise about their life, a sense of uh i don't know i don't even begin to know what i need to change i don't even like the idea of change of of thinking about changing something that already feels artificial to me i just feel like i'm at a loss um i'm not i'm not doing mi right? um i'm thinking in that much more in a much more sort of person centered counseling exploratory sort of uh, approach um and I think that is something more like 
what we usually think of as growth in the classical sense of uh I, I don't have a particular goal i i just want my life to be better and i don't know why my life is not good but it's not and i'm i'm lost um so i still think there is a a bit of a um you know sort of a natural shifting back and forth between those those two sorts of uh therapeutic focuses it, yeah it oh see where you talking mm-hmm. yeah so i want to talk to both pieces the steve's first question was is am i becoming more like client-centered therapy over time or is it opening up into similar territory maybe is a better way to put it and i think it is you know i think that from the first edition of the book that was preparing people to change addictive behavior i don't know the exact subtitle to helping people grow and change is certainly both a broadening and a deepening of the focus of mi and in that way i think the as mi broadens you know, there's more, it, it's broadening into a territory that classic client-centered therapy has been at home in. Um, at the, at the same time, I have another part of me, another kind of itchy feeling that in some ways MI is moving away from client-centered therapy over time. So I could think of a couple examples of this, but one is, one is simply like to, I know we're in, in insider kind of stuff a little bit, but in the second edition of the MI book, there were sections on when I'm when MI is non-directed. And in the third edition and after, it was non-directed was no longer a part of MI. That at some point it MI model encompassed both periods of directional focus and periods of non-directional exploring. And it seems to me that that piece is been taken out in favor of this what I call the gear shift model. I don't know if that's what it's called or that's just how it sat in my head that what when, we, when we're in gear, gear shift model, like when when we're in neutral, uh, it's non-directed ah. <laughs> therapy. And then we put it in gear to move forward towards counseling with neutrality versus being in gear. That's 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 yeah. I like um, that. Okay. And yeah. I don't know I, I you know I don't want to say either any is better. I just think they're different ways of focusing and i personally think you could you can do really depth oriented mi and you just rethink how you define change it doesn't you know it isn't just a behavioral goal or even necessarily um a change in identity or a change in you know relationship or something like that but just to change could be defined as growing into myself or mm-hmm. moving towards um peace or like the last decade and a half of a lot of therapy has been around acceptance. And I think you could say acceptance is a kind of change. I want to define my change goal as becoming more accepting with my life as it is. And I've worked with a number of people with chronic diseases where that's really the focus. There really isn't a change to make other than to stop fighting, you know, with acceptance of how things are now, move to that, be at peace, and then live a life that is more what I want. Superb. Superb. I, I, think, if I could ask you the maddest yeah. question that, of the evening. Oh, I got to hear that, Steve. Yeah. And then it would be quite interesting to 
sort of circle around to the question, which is the title of the seminar. What is the difference? What is the difference between client-centered counseling and existential therapy? Oh, that's a that's a I'm whole. Totally looking at Alan on that one. You summarized <laughs> that. Alan. So I think exist. I mean, I'll try to be really brief. Existential therapy really does start from a certain set of premises about existence and about and 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 assumes that you know when you when you sort of get to the heart of things it it, it the the existential realities of death and our knowledge that our lives will end finitude uh and and limitation um the anxiety or angst that is generated by those awarenesses that those are the things that really drive a great deal of suffering is the the efforts to deny uh those those existential realities um and i think existential counseling really in, in a way is more like it, it has more of a set of ideas about here are the causes of suffering and here are the solution here are the ways to help people you know uh transmit that suffering of course like like Freud, the existentialists start from the assumption that you can the best you can do. What Freud said, we, you you want to transform neurotic suffering into neurotic uh, pathology into into everyday suffering. He thought that was about as good as you could get. Um, I think the existentialists are not quite that primitive, uh, pessimistic, but I think there is a kind of pessimism in existentialism um, that is not present at all in Rogers. Much more. Um, Okay. Uh, hopeful, I think, and positive vision of uh, of human being. And one of the connecting threads to existential psychotherapy, client-centered therapy, and motivational interviewing therapy has to do with personal values. Has to do has to do with values and how you make meaning of your life based on your values that are going to inform the choices that you make which are incredibly important to be able to take responsibility for. And so you're looking at the, you know, how do I make meaning in my life? Not what is the meaning of life? As Franco would say, that's too abstract. You know, but but if I look at the meaning of my life, then I can start to break it down in the way you were talking, Alan. Start looking at what it is that I'm struggling with and, you know, and all of that. And that's where I think the sort of humanistic existential connection came because that was during the 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 human growth movement and you know like minds just kind of get associated together even though as you said alan there's there's nuances and significant differences okay. i think your i think your point about responsibility is an important one joel that in, in existential therapy um is that that there is a sense of an, uh, an effort that we are all tempted to try to deny our own responsibility for our own choices because because they are so fraught and and um and we we so often make mistakes and don't know we've made them until after uh we've acted um and so the goal of helping people take responsibility for their choices accept the responsibility for their own lives 
uh, and and then see that as a result that they also have a kind of agency um, to make choices. Okay, the dark side as well as a positive side. Okay, okay. Look, I'm sorry, I took us. You got us off on that tangent. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Can I say something about? Um, back on our on our focus, which that which came up as as I was listening um, to 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 Chris uh, earlier, um, I think and 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 in this in this conversation about growth and and MI and growth, um, I I think uh, what you call the gear shift model, uh, Chris, I've, I've I've been referring to as the standard model of mi the, the 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 which really is focused very much uh on cultivating change talk uh you know in the context of an accepting uh relationship a relationship of safety where um and and having a direction and having directionality knowing where you're going and and facilitating that and an avoidance of cultivating sustained talk um and and caution about what would have been seen as the dangers of drawing out sustained talk um as having the tendency to keep people stuck and there is this other model that has been proposed and it's kind of popped up here and there it was uh laid out by hal arkowitz in in the mi and psychological problems books um which he and in his book on resolving ambivalence that he calls the conflict resolution model of mi that henny westra in her research has has uh really drawn from oh, in using mi with people with anxiety disorders that makes the argument that exploring both sides of the ambivalence um can be a crucial part of effective motivational interviewing and i think the conflict re- resolution model is, you know, if you ask what would Rogers think of MI, I think he would like the conflict resolution model or understanding of how MI works much better than what I've referred to as the standard model. Um, with the idea of if you give people the opportunity to explore their ambivalence in particular ways, and I think the I think it's the in particular ways that's what that MI's. That's MI's contribution and, and advance over person-centered counseling. Um, but that exploring ambivalence in that way um, give, provides the kind of trust in the person's uh, natural tendency towards growth, towards being able to find their own way, um, and at the same time helps resolve ambivalence more more effectively than uh, other kinds of conversation. Nice. So what you've done is you've you've pinpointed an area for develop for for real development, in which I'm sure we'll all agree. The best guidelines will emerge inductively from people's experience of actual conversations and ever process research on these conversations. I think there's. I feel this is just personal. I mean, it's there's been too much premature closure on. Mm-hmm how to explore ambivalence and i was with somebody today and i just let him go and he just i mean the sustained talk was like an incredible shower 
And and I waited until he'd finished and summarized it for him. And I said, what next? Uh, did I freeze? And the conversation moved off in a positive direction. So I think there's lots to explore there. But what would Rogers feel about MI now? So many, so many threads that I keep wanting to come back to. But um, so it depends to me a little bit if we're taking Rogers from a time capsule from when he was alive to now and when. You know, you know, if he were a living human being yet, he'd have had 35 more years of seeing the world develop and seeing helping systems develop. And I think in some ways, looking these in looking at MI and classic person-centered therapy in, in the context of their times and of the focus and of the goals and the way services were delivered and, and organized, um, is different from just kind of talking about them as abstract things. And so I, you know, my sense with Rogers is he was a radical from the beginning. I mean, he, he started psychotherapy research be, after being told only psychiatrists can do therapy. Psychologists don't know how to do it. And he's like, well, I'll show you basically. And, you know, started that. And I, you know, it seemed to me he, he kept unfolding over the course of his life to, uh, you know, a model where it's about, I don't know if empowering people in to use MI language, but it's about more egalitarianism and less hierarchy, less people standing outside of others and being experts on them. And I think Rogers would love that about MI and love that MI has helped advance that, particularly in medical settings, criminal justice settings, places where the hierarchies traditionally were were very strong. And the the people at the top had the power for decision making, um, as psych- psychiatrists classically did with people with mental illnesses, and obviously is the case in the criminal justice system. I think Rogers would really like that. That MI has been among, you know, in medical, there's shared decision making. There's other, you know, other models that have tried to do a similar thing, but the the idea of bringing people, giving, allowing people to have more of their own power and uh, incorporating their voice in whatever is going on, I think you would really like. Eric Stoffel points out, I think very nicely in the in, in a comment to us that uh, uh, Bill and Steve were also radicals in uh, in your time. I mean, what what was being proposed as a way of working with people with addictions, the idea that you know people with addictions could be treated as human beings uh and and that confronting and so on and uh uh w- was was not only not not the way to work but actually harmful um you know in their in your quiet ways this, this was also a radical stance and i and i think uh, i like very much the idea of that that sort of confluence between roger's radicalism and the radicalism that MI really represented it, it, when it was first articulated. Mm-hmm. In the contrast of these models that were very different, that were not about empowering, that were not about incur- you know, evoking people's voices. I got an email this afternoon from Bill saying, I've got a very serious regret about what we put in this fourth edition of the book, which is 
just one way of describing NMI. It's not the only way. And guess what it was? It, it, I see Joachim Korkel is, is from Germany is here. Apparently in Germany, MI has been defined as a form of CBT. And within the reimbursement system, you can't get MI unless it's defined as a form of CBT. And this has been brought to Bill's attention. And he and I in the last three days have been exchanging uh, a document <laughs> about the origins and essence of MI as being client-centered. And now this afternoon he wrote saying, I just wish when we wrote this latest book that we hadn't emphasized that more. Interesting. Hmm. I was thinking about in my head, um, if we, uh, maybe we ought to do this, get some audio of Rogers or, you know, an expert in person-centered counseling and coding. You know, because there'd be loads of reflections. It'd be low, really uh, low and softening, sustained talk. Probably almost neutral in cultivating change talk, if not low. High in empathy and partnership would probably be, you know, because because of the stance of the person-centered therapist. They're not trying to create a partnership for the, to engage the person and their thinking about how they're going to do this. It's not an active process. I think I think person-centered therapy would not, by the current metrics we have in assessing MI proficiency, wouldn't come close to being motivational interviewing. Well, I think it depends on yeah, it depends on which variables you focus on. So we did a yeah yeah no yeah I just, we did study we didn't publish it probably should but anyway looking at a number of approaches by video demonstrations. Um, Rogers and Miller came out really quite close in their style, yep. certainly the reflection to question ratio. The biggest differences were uh, amount of speaking time. Uh, Bill was higher than Rogers, so it was more involved, which I think is what we were talking about, not so much a companion as much as a collaborative partner. There was um, more focus on change talk. Not surprisingly, when we coded that, and there was a future versus present focus, which I think also helps differentiate MI from client-centered, uh, classic client-centered therapy. But I mean, there's a an overlap is sort of the uh, the spirit of MI meets the six necessary and sufficient. Um, just drew a blank. Conditions. Conditions, thank you, Chris. Uh, conditions, right? And and and, but all of that is is how how you are with the person and what you're trying to create for the person to be able to do some self exploration. Yeah, I think you know, just on the context piece, the we live in a different world where the amount of time uh, is less. We're pressed for more efficiency, for more demonstrable outcomes. Um, in more structured settings that are often, you know, specific to a, a problem or a change or a way of um, organizing work in individuals, couples, groups, et cetera, than when Rogers was practicing, when it was kind of figured out as you go along. Um, you know, 
to, to pick up with the rest of the Rogers thread, just so we don't lose that, what would he think of MI? I think he would really like the empirical basis of MI, how much research is done. I mean, he was very committed to that. And I think at the same time, he would try to find a word that's decry is the word that comes to mind, uh, how much the focus is on outcome studies and how little focus there is on process and the interpersonal processes. Um, because I think one of the big overlaps of, of these two approaches is that interpersonal process element. And it, at least it seems to me, he would look at this, maybe it's just my own projection and say, why aren't we studying what's happening between people? Why aren't we studying like Alan's thesis dissertation? I forget what it was years ago. How did the clients perceive an interaction? What did they take away? What stood out for them? Um, it, you know, the thing I think I got most from MI is just that sense of really tuning into whoever I'm talking to in the moment and riding the, you know, riding the ride with them and not being up my head deciding what do I need to do to try to influence them, but helping find it together. And it just seems like we, there isn't funding for that or there is an interest. I don't know. We have like 2000 randomized controlled outcome trials or something. A few dozen, several dozen, maybe process studies. And I, I would, I yeah. completely agree with you on that, Chris. And I guess I, I don't want to seem like I'm doing a commercial, but um, for, for Henny Westra and, and, and her, her research uh, and her work, because she is one of the few who has alongside her outcome studies have also had a an ongoing program, her and her colleagues at York University, uh, on in process research, specifically looking at the, the client experience of MI and on what's happening when MI is is happening. And I, it's not a coincidence because so those who, who know, York University is the center of, of uh, experience, uh, uh, you know, Les Greenberg and experiential therapy, which is part of the what has been called one of the tribes of the person-centered world. And I think they have that culture there to do exactly the kind of exploration that you were just referring to, Chris, that that we need so much more of. And I think that the that us in this discussion, as well as a lot of the people I can recognize as participants would agree that this has been a almost like a wave that overcame the field that we feel was unwise. And if you ask me what bit of writing I ever did that I'm most happy with, it was a paper called Enthusiasm, Quick Fixes, and Premature Control Trials, which which I wrote as a commentary in 2000 or something after the first meta-analysis. And I felt then this was what, and it's it's our fault, I feel, because we had too narrow a focus on the purpose of MI is to change behavior. And of course, we then reaped the punishment, not the reward of uh, an obsessive uh, uh, pursuit of control trial evidence. So I think we agree that, don't we? I mean, it, uh, yeah, I don't know how much the is on your shoulders. I mean, that's the zeitgeist. That's the times that we've just... I think are starting to move out of, but we're moving through at a minimum of, you know, all of the attention going to horse race kind of studies or just demonstrations of 
uh, you know, can this do something, but without really knowing why or how um, means we're really lacking. And it means as you continue to develop a model, you don't have the data that would really benefit you in continuing to develop the MI model because it's not there's not enough research going on. I do think that we sometimes don't we 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 get a little too narrow um in our focus and don't pay enough attention to related research that is going on that almost sort of adjacent to to what would be MI process research um so Robert Elliott's interpersonal process recall research that he talked about at PCE last year, um, and he has a you know he's been doing that for decades. Um, I came across a study very recently that used a completely different language to talk about ambivalence markers. It was in a CBT context, and 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 looking at the process of what happens in a therapy session where a client either expresses a new what we would call change talk says something like i really feel like i want to be more assertive is that it was the example they gave i'm really tired of just quieting my own voice and then in some cases would say but then i'm going to feel really foolish if i do that and they call that an ambivalence marker uh and and the the the, the other line i can't forget the other term they use but for the first kind of language they call it something like a um movement marker like a you know innovation marker or something like that and what they found fascinatingly was that ambivalence markers meaning sustained talk coming immediately after change talk is associated with worse outcomes so it's that the oscillation that you know bill and steve were writing about you know so decades ago about what you hear when people are ambivalent uh oscillating be between the two that that genuinely does seem to be uh destructive uh, you know sort of keeps people stuck versus when they articulate uh uh a, 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 you know a moment of innovation and don't immediately follow it with the other side mm where that's associated with much better outcomes in a variety of ways in the next session, lower symptoms in the next session and things like that. So I think there is some research out there that we could be drawing on that can help inform our understanding of what we, what we are doing um, that I think, you know, go back to what, what would Rogers think? I think he would, he would say anyone who's doing any of this kind of process research, you know, this is all valuable. It's not, we, we figured out a way to do it, you know, the Q sort and the different methods that he came up with, but certainly that's not the, you know, we, we need lots of ways of understanding what is the client's experience and you know, what actually what's happening in the session and how does that then relate to what happens after the session? Well, the other, the other thing that struck me, um, kind of a, as a divergence is, and I, and I and I shared this in our email exchange is that um, person-centered therapy isn't a brief intervention, right? People were going to therapy twice a week for 20, 40, 60 sessions. Well, but, you know, I sorry to interrupt, Joel, but you have to remember, you know, talk about context. In the context yeah, of yeah. The times, a 20 to 40 session therapy was a brief intervention, right? Because the contrast was with psychoanalysis and, you know, twice a week or more for years. 
So Rogers, as work was actually known as being much briefer, but what we would now look at it and say 20 to 40 sessions is almost interminable versus, you know, the three to five session interventions that that we're doing now. Sure. Sure. So sure. so if I don't I don't know you could do well, maybe you could. I've never tried. I'd be, I'd be interested to see like person-centered therapy done in 15 minutes. You know, I, I don't think given where where Rogers was going with the approach and what what where they were aiming for in terms of becoming a fully functioning human, it would take a while. But that's that's a sure. very yeah, they're, they're, it's a very non. There's a focus there, but it's not specific. One of the differences. MI is a very specific. Yeah, one of the differences in our context again is that I know, and I know MI is broader than psychotherapy, but therapy and counseling used to be intact, conceived of as an intact journey. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Where we're much more in an episodic care era now or come in and let's deal with this part of it. You're going to go have your life. You may come back to me. You may go somebody else when you want to kind of take the next step, uh, as opposed to there's a start, a middle, and an end. And so I do think, you know, MI provides the tools to be much more efficient by narrowing the focus to what's most important to the person seeking help or being sent for help right now, and that that can then open up or unfold either by extending our time together or by, you know, over multiple episodes. And I think this is where another place where MI has kind of moved away from what Rogers was moving toward, which is around techniques. So, or the other way around, um, you know, Rogers had really got to the point where he so disliked the, even the idea of techniques, the idea of reflection as a technique or an open question as a technique just were anathema to him toward the end of his life. And MI come in and really embraced these as saying, you know, you could, you know, the way I hear MI is that you, it may, you may be sufficient to have conditions where you're sitting with somebody and being heart to heart with them. But actually, if you use these techniques, you can move things along quicker to an end that they desire and that that is better. And I think, you know, it would it would seem absurd to me if somebody was wanting to quit smoking or came in and said, I just can't go on drinking like this, you know, to do person-centered therapy with them. Um, uh, it's not what it's designed for. It's not what it's designed for. And I think we have pretty good evidence that it doesn't work um, when you've got, you know, especially the things that MI was originally designed for, habit change. Essentially, whether you call it, think of a drinking and drug use or, or smoking or health behavior, other kinds of health behavior changes. Um, I think in those, in those kinds of areas, the efficiency, the focus, the, 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 the specification of technique, um, just re is, results in a much more effective way of helping people. Um, and I, I say that as somebody who's, who, you know, still very much loves person-centered and exploratory therapies. But um, I, I think the great advantage of the advance of MI is that we have different tools for different kinds of problems. Uh, whereas before it was, it was really the old, you know, you've got a hammer so everything looks like a nail sort of approach. Mm -hmm. 
I was just looking at Gary's question around the uh, therapist factor, such as empathy, acceptance, and congruence, and how there's overlap. And and that's in, that's something that I'm glad you brought that up, Gary, because that, that stands out to me. So when you read about what Rogers would talk about, about on becoming a client-centered therapist, it was a real process where in order to do this, you had to kind of put yourself through through it to find your own internal congruence. So then you could create the space to to work with the person and you you're you wouldn't get and your stuff wouldn't get meddled up with their stuff, particularly in the way he understood what actually being empathic was and getting into the client's frame of reference and their phenomenological world. And you're, you're there as a visitor. You're not there as a participant or there to to move things around. And I. I go out and teach motivational interviewing in two days to people that don't have counseling backgrounds. And so we're, I think we're taking, we're talking about two different things around things like uh, genuineness and acceptance and even expressing of empathy from a, from a Rogerian perspective to uh to a Bill and Steve perspective. They're, they're the same thing, but what there's a little more emphasis put on, on the helper's personal development. Well, I, I think what's really cool, one of the really cool things about MI is that you can teach, do a workshop, teach people, uh, and, and hopefully some follow-up, some coaching, some opportunity for integrating what you what they've learned, and set them loose uh, on, on, you know, in doing the work, and they can be more helpful than they would have been prior sure. to that. Um, I... And at the same time, I would say, you know, when I've done, you know, in, in the in the coaching, in in supervision, in guidance that I've done for for MI practitioners over the past, you know, decade or two, um, where you know the, the, that's a starting point, right? Um, and if you want to be really good at MI, I think what it takes to be really good at MI, it begins to converge with what you were just describing, Joel, which is developing your capacity for a deeper level of empathy, uh, a deeper a deeper ability to to maintain a prizing gaze, the the term that Rogers used uh, alternatively to unconditional positive regard that I that I love best because i think it's that it's that gaze that uh we look at when we're looking at someone we love and we're seeing through the eyes of love which is what i think fundamentally unconditional positive regard is and what i think an affirming presence really is and i think it's what we need to do in mi as well and, and to be able to do that and to be genuinely uh have the genuine level of equanimity of acceptance that the person may choose not to do the things that you might think would be in their best interest and that you can be fully okay with that. Even if you believe in your heart, they might have done better had they made a different choice. I think it takes a long time to be able to do MI in that way. But when you develop yourself in that way, you can be much more powerful as an MI practitioner, more effective and move faster. Interestingly, you become more efficient as well as more impactful. Yeah, I found it incredibly helpful a couple of years ago when you highlighted this prizing element 
and you talked about, in a way, offering up rather than handing down. Um, and I've noticed with school teachers and sports coaches, that, you know, it's in my last 10 years, how incredibly valuable is that distinction um, in the delivery of an affirmation or in the offering of information and advice. It's, you know, I wanted to thank you for that, Alan. I just found it so helpful. Thank Rogers. You know, you know, one of the one of the things that I think Carl would uh wonder about is is how the phrase person-centered has become so big. Right? We have person-centered services, we have person-centered that. And and they're they're not even talking about Rogerian psychotherapy. Or, or anything about it. They're just talking about we listen to our, our patients, our clients, and we think about them versus, you know, something very specific. And and I think for a lot of people, and maybe maybe it's just because I'm getting I'm getting older, a lot of that is getting lost in terms of what actually is person what does it mean from a Rogerian perspective to be person centered? Kind of like strengths based, right? And it's <laughs> It's really changed a lot from its inception back in the 70s, I believe, in terms of what it is. Um, and as Steve, you just said, you know, motivational interviewing gets spread pretty thin sometimes as to what exactly it is. So that's what I was just wondering. What are you thinking about if he walked around a person-centered world? Maybe he'd be happy. <laughs> You know, I think to some degree, the, the history of almost anything that has a starting point is it starts narrow and then it broadens. And certainly the person-centered tribes, as as they call themselves, Alan referred to earlier, are strike me as very different from one another. And I think Rogers would like some of those better than others. Some are closer to what he did and some are really very different interpretations. But I think the thing he would support and that I hope we all support is that um we stay open and we keep changing and we keep trying to find Absolutely. something that captures it a little bit better. Um, you know, I, we still use the terms that Rogers eschewed toward the end, right? The reflection, open question, thinking about using these as te techniques, teaching them as techniques. But hopefully uh, we, you know, MI captures that sense that he ended up with of, we're what do, how do you put it? We're verbalizing provisional understandings or we're testing our perceptions with people um as we do this. We're not reflecting something strictly in a mechanical, strategic way to try to influence the person's uh, where they're at in their ambivalence, but we're really trying to understand where they're coming from, even if we're sometimes putting things into words that they haven't yet put into words. That we're not crossing that line. I think Alan's shared this. We're not crossing that line in interpretation where we're trying to plant an idea of how they should see things. We're just trying to reflect something that is their experience, whether they've come to that verbalization yet or not. Yeah. And I think that what you just described, Chris, is something that I think we've all seen. Um, I, I, I'm assuming we've all had it's had seen some trainees um, and new learners of MI struggle with 
this sense of, I don't want to be putting words into somebody else's mouth. Am I being intrusive if mm -hmm. I go beyond the things they say? Um, but I think this is very much a place of confluence between what Rogers and what he described and, and what we, how we think in MI, even though the, the, the language we use is a little bit different. That idea, you, you referenced the, the construct of the internal frame of reference, Joel, this idea that our goal is to imagine ourselves into the world and the experience of the other person as if uh, we were sort of walking around within it. Um, and what Rogers thought was that part of what that allows you to do is to see and articulate things of which the person is only partially aware, is aware of, but is avoiding articulating for the reasons we talked about earlier, because, uh, because conditions of worth, uh, mitigate against it. Uh, and that we can sometimes express things that the client will recognize as theirs that they have not been able to find the words for or haven't quite formulated yet. And I think that depth of empathy is powerful in MI and in person-centered counseling. Now look, Steve. Yeah, and I, I and I, I'm, I have a guess about where Steve's going to go with this, but I'm I'm going to wait and and see if I'm right. <laughs> I confronted Bill about this issue. How could I clarify what? I, it might be a point of difference between MI and client-centered counseling. This that certainly in the form of therapy that you are describing, Alan. There's great integrity and coherence to how you describe the place of empathic listening and empathy. Then if you fast forward into the hurried world of MI in healthcare and all sorts of environments, what if, and I just leave MI out of it, I'll come back to MI in a moment, a young doctor last couple of months came to me and said, look, um, there's no way in the context in which I'm working that I can really enter the world of all these people who are dying in front of me and I'm telling them they've got poor prognoses and I'm dealing with distressed, weeping relatives. I would burn out. I can't cope like that. And can you help me? And the way we... The way I feel we resolve this, if I could return to MI, <clears throat> is more or less to distinguish between cognitive and emotional empathy. And then I checked it out with Bill, who says, no, you don't have to enter into someone's world in order to empathize with them. He's basically stating what I suppose you could call cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. So this doctor found it extremely useful and has written up this little paper, which I'm helping her write and stuff like that. And she's described a scenario in which she's capable of cognitively empathizing with these people, but keeping her distance, so to speak, so that she can manage other aspects of the work that she has to do. And is this perhaps a point of difference? Because I'm, I'm not saying Bill Miller's view is the only view or characterizes MI. I'm just saying, in his view, 
You don't need to enter a person's world in order to empathize with them. And I've noticed inside myself that I feel protected by that awareness. And I'm worried about getting burnt. And I have been burnt out 20, 30 years ago. And I think this was one of the reasons. So I'm worried about not in a form of therapy, but I'm worried outside of therapy of this concept of empathy being people worshipping on the altar of this concept of empathy as if it's, you know, the magic ingredients and solution, even to kind of resolving international conflicts when it's a little bit more complex um, and not so easy for people, not necessarily so functional. And in the case of wider geopolitical conflicts, people over-empathize with their own people and fail to empathize with others. You know, you can. So I'm worried about oversimplifying empathy. And I'm suggesting that this is a point of contrast between client-centered counseling and MI. So it's it, it might be, but I think it's also a point of contrast just within the umbrella of MI, depending on what role you're in, what setting, the amount of time you have, what the specific goals that you're using MI for, right? Because we, you know, the at the very from the very outside, MI was used as an engagement tool into other therapies as well as to then a helping thing of its own. But even if you're using MI as a in a helping model, if you're a Physicians, you know, circulating on wards, dealing with people who are being, you know, told their condition is terminal and you've got to keep moving. You know, what MI is to you and how the the goal that you would be using it for, the purpose you'd be using it for are different than if you are doing outpatient ongoing psychotherapy or you're working, you know, doing residential work with somebody. Um, yeah, I, I agree completely, Chris. I think. I don't think, and, and this is a discussion that goes also back a couple of decades, right? I don't think everything we call MI is the same. I don't think what I do when I'm doing MI in the context, of, in the psychotherapy context, is the same thing as what people do when they, when they are doing MI in a busy hospital setting. And I don't think it's the same thing that I do when I'm uh, in, in, in my current work, uh, having conversations with people uh, to help who are ill to help them do advanced care planning. Um, I think not, uh, or certainly not what a dentist would do with, 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 with a patient when they're talking about, you know, uh, tooth care. And not, not only is it, it, it for the reasons that you described, Steve, on the, on the provider side, but on the patient or client side, you know, if you walk into a doctor's office, and the doctor is doing deep empathy with you, you're going to probably be weirded out. It's not what you're looking for from that in that setting. You know, you didn't go in there expecting somebody to be seeing into the depths of your soul. You gained, went in there because, you know, you were feeling sick or you you had a, you know, and you wanted help from them with that. So I, I think whether we say it's different ways of doing MI or whether we should be making distinctions between what MI is in these different contexts, uh, I think MI is actually a very broad umbrella. Mm -hmm. And what it looks like in different contexts, and there's a comment about, you know, in, in the criminal justice system, I would push back a little bit, and I can't help myself from saying that you can't empathize with people who are engaging in criminal behavior in, in, in the full sense of empathy. Um, 
and and I think I, there's a paper that you wrote, co-wrote Steve decades ago about that I still love about um, working with with a person who had engaged in sec, uh, abusive behavior, um, and and the empathy of uh, and, and the power of MI in that context. Um, but I, I do think you, you you're not going to do empathy in the same way or at the same level in in, in all contexts, and nor nor should you. Yeah, and I've got it. You know, I'm, one of my sons a police officer, and just earlier on this evening, right, he's looking at a video and then comes up on the video screen, 2020. And so I walked in to prepare food, and I said, what's that 2020? He said, that's a signal on the on the video for me to take 20-minute break before I look at the next frame. So distressing was the next frame going to be. Mm. Okay, so you forget about, you know, yeah, I think you can finish my sentence. Yeah, and I think it's extremely useful what you're saying about the both of you, Alan and Chris, that there are different settings in which you use MI and different ways in which that happens and different roles for the use of empathic listening. That, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, different <laughs> context, different mechanisms, different goals, different focus. And it's where, I mean, two things come to mind. One is MI is kind of what we would call a name brand therapy at this point. And I think it's outgrown that. I think MI is, maybe the name is not appropriate for this, but it's something more akin to cognitive behavioral therapy, a broad umbrella in which, the, you know, used in different settings in different ways, but with kind of a general understanding of what the focus is and the general ways that we relate to people and kind of a set of tools that you can but don't have to use right in any given interaction um the to flip it around though to think about what is the other person experiencing is still work that i really hope that we do more and more of going forward because you're you and alan are alan and steve you're contrasting different provider uh, experiences of what empathy is but if you flip it around to the patient or the client or the person on the receiving end, it may not really matter that they hear someone attempting to understand them and you're getting reasonably close and you want to get closer, maybe the important things, regardless of whether in your experience, you're just cognitively identifying some things or emotionally uh, aligning you know, with things. I think Roger's idea of Empathy being both immersive, but also detached, you know, there's immersion and detachment at the same time. You're fully in, but you got to, you know, you don't well, lose yourself in it. You never lose the as if quality. That, yes. that was the other thing that he was very explicit about, that you've got one foot out. Yeah. yeah. It means something really different if you're doing kind of slow uncovering work of, you know, embedded traumas and how that's impacted people's identity over decades versus if you've got, you know, oppressing, there's a problem right now and somebody needs to solve it. You know, I think it's just probably a different thing, but. I do. And, and yet, if I could just say one more thing about the cognitive empathy versus, um, you know, something like what I would say, the, the, the sort of full cognitive affective, which is what I think empathy really is a kind of, both that are both i think 
very often when I have been working with with uh, in, in supervision and coaching with folks who are struggling with the client and not able to figure out, and again, this is not in therapy settings. I'm talking about advanced care planning, patient navigation, so medical medical adjacent settings um, where they're feeling like they're just not getting anywhere in the conversation that they're having and the things that the client is saying is is is, is sort of they're not quite grasping it very often. It's helping them to slow down and allow themselves to resonate with what the client is saying. Um, and I and I've adopted this this con- the construct of resonance. I found it to be very helpful for myself and for my when I'm doing coaching. That um, the metaphor, yeah, I've got my guitar in the background. Is um, you know when you pluck a guitar string, it's it's the, the 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 top of the guitar resonates and and how it resonates is going to determine the quality of the sound. If it's too stiff and rigid, you get no sound. If it's too loose, it sounds muddy. There has to be an ability to resonate with what the other person is saying, which I think does mean some affective availability. Um and particularly when there's discord and when there is stuckness in the work between us, to that will often give us the information, the clues we need to understand why am I not connecting with this person that I'm trying to help? Um, what's the unspoken between us that is creating a barrier to them feeling accepted and safe so that we can actually work together you know, in the direction of of change. It's just superb. I've been getting emails from people while we while we're uh, chatting, saying things like, "I had to knock off, but is there some way I can access the recording?" Um, and I know from um, because I know Angela well, she's probably thinking, "There's only eight minutes left," and I'm wondering whether we should hand over. The next few minutes. Um, to yeah, there'll definitely be there'll def- there'll definitely be a way to access the recording. I mean, we do the podcast and get it up on YouTube. Um, so you know, I'd love to say in twenty four hours, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh-huh. Um, so I mean, all of the all of our episodes are on uh, podcasts and on the YouTube so far. Um. So what were you thinking we should do, Steve? I don't know. I'm just noticing. Kind of wind it down. Well, I'm wanting to give some of the participants who, who are in the sidelines some space. Yeah. Um, yes, I think we've been trying to address some of those that come up, but it would be great if people would pop up and share either the next thought or something we missed or, you know, something else that they, they would like to have a conversation about. Have a look. I love that last co- the, the the comment by Anna in the last one that it, it kind of came through. You know, it, it's it could probably be a whole topic of conversation. You know, you know, is 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 am I more complicated than it needs to be? Uh, it's I know Steve, you probably love that question because that that has spoken to to your commitment to finding and and, and Bill's as well to find the simplicity on the other side of complexity um, in talking about am I and how we understand it. Um, I do think MI is more than person-centered therapy. I don't think any of us would disagree about that. And and it, we, we can't reduce one to the other. Um, 
Both more than and less than. Different than, yeah. Both more than and less than, yes. Different. I think that Ernest's comments got wisdom to it, but really, I really feel MI is, has got quite a purposeful quality to it. It's got a directional purposeful quality that's something that's beautiful. Yeah. And so, um, uh, I think what Ona's describing is an absolutely gorgeous description of engagement to, yeah. use, to use the MI free framework. And then Ona, where next? I like that Ona, Ona opened up the flip side of what I'd said earlier, what when he said Bill was doing more, it's no that Rogers was doing more, but that was the receiving. I do think Rogers would think MI is more complicated than it needs to be, but I challenge him to try to get done in the amount of time what MI gets done uh, without complicating <laughs> things up a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we're, there's a lot of consensus. Wonder if and that, that sort of I, comes back around a little bit to the where we started when we started bumping up against the contrast with the negotiating part. And that's where it gets complicated. <laughs> that's where, you know, I'm, I'm going, okay, we need to negotiate what it is you want to address as opposed to you just be yourself. And, and, and as I was reading um, client centered therapy, Roger's original book, I had this idea, and this may be just like one of these Joel things, is that although psychoanalysis and client-centered therapy are quite different in most most way, a lot of well, Rogers was influenced by auto rank and and Gestalt therapy as well, um, would look very different. But the therapist's role is to remain consistent the whole time. And so if I'm the person-centered therapist, all I'm trying to do is offer offer back to the person what I'm experiencing from them in their words. Right? So there's no well, negotiation through, about where are we go. But through the eyes of love and... Oh, yeah, and, 100%. Right, 100%. Right. I mean, he, he even wrote that there's no investment in the outcome even if it's the outcome could create harm for the client, right? You just have to trust the process that wow. that they will, you know, align. They'll integrate was a word that he would use. They they will become integrated within themselves, and then they'll make better choices. They'll make choices that they can live with. Probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. There's a comment about pluralism in the back channel, but I don't know that that's something we can tackle in a minute or two. Um, maybe it's still, still looking forward, but can I just, can I just share one little, it's not nitpicky makes it sound bad, but a little thing that I, I just want to mention. So in Anna's chat, she quotes at the end, part of a Rogers quote that is pretty famous that I always get a little unsettled because it, consistently gets misquoted and this is the misquote here um there's a the quote is you know the curious paradox is that when i accept myself just as i am then i can change and that's why it's quoted everywhere but in roger's books it's actually book it's actually when i accept myself just as i am then i change and it might just other people might not think that's a fundamental difference but to me it makes a difference in that acceptance just 
doesn't just open up the possibility in, after which people can change because they're not locked up. That's a part of it. But from Roger's position, as I understood it, ex- acceptance is change. And he talks about, and I think it, to go back to some of the ways he'd think about MI and the complicated nature of it, he talks about once there is acceptance, change just kind of happens naturally. I don't even think about it. People don't even think about it. It just flows out of them kind of being more congruent and genuine in themselves. Wow. So that one always, I don't know why it's all, thank you, Anna, but it's not your misquote. It's the way <laughs> I see it everywhere online is I can change, but I've checked multiple editions of the book and it doesn't say can there. Incredibly. That's I think that is profound, Chris, actually. It's not, it's small, but it, it is profound because it speaks to his, Roger's fundamental understanding of, of, personality formation personality change and what it means to be a human being that 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 self-acceptance is the most radical thing that can happen the 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 most profound thing that can happen for the person and and it's the absence of self-acceptance the uh, the limitations on self-acceptance that are the source of suffering and, and what it, we can do is we can help you have self-acceptance and quit smoking <laughs> if you're going to feel good about yourself, let's set it up so you can feel good about yourself longer. Stay around long like, enough longer. Yeah, to be able to enjoy it. Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah, really superb. Uh, Grant, in the context, they would have been smoking in the sessions back then, too. Yeah, also <laughs> true. We've seen that. Great. Yeah, nice. I study. I, I study I, my, a couple of my professors, in fact, were guys who had been with Rogers in Chicago and and all of them smoked like chimneys in the even this was of course I was in grad school in the early 80s and and but it was a constant in all the sessions hmm. yeah. it is now on the half hour so the session is now closed please feel free to leave thanks everybody um you've been thanked for nitpicking Chris <laughs> Is quite a compliment. Oh, David! <laughs> I wanted to. I, I felt I didn't get to bring uh, to address Dave's comment earlier in the chat, and was looking for an opportunity to, and didn't get to. But uh, amplifying the idea that exploring sustained talk um, that is is also is sort of drawing a parallel with with uh, messages of positivity that that lead people to be afraid to explore difficult emotions like regret sadness longing and how powerful it, it can be to give people that space to to not shy away from or not think if we if if we allow people you know or invite people to express those feelings that we're um that we're keeping them stuck or that we are in some way interfering with their their growth but very often it's an important part of of their ability to grow from their experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I have a regret, it's ever part. This is just personal, Alan. I'm not. It's not a party line. I re, I very much regret ever creating the impression that MI is about cultivating change talk at the expense of sustained talk. I think it's a naive and unhelpful um, proposition. There've been too many occasions. I had two or three this morning. Too many occasions where if you give someone space to get it off their chest and to really describe how 
demoralized they feel and why, it opens up the avenue for change. And to me, it's one it's one useful tool in MI. And you're we're much better off to be able to think in this moment, it seems like cultivating the change talk and softening the sustained talk, or however you might it could be helpful. And then there are other times to go, no, this person just needs to vomit it all out. They need to say everything that's bad about this, everything they hate, and then kind of go, okay, now what do I need to do? Yeah. Um, you know, that would, that would be a more person centered framework. But I think it's almost inevitable, right? When, I mean, I, I, I you know, my perspective is that the idea of self motivational, you know, statements or change talk and this whole, that, this was, this is, you know, one of the primary innovations that MI brought to to the field and and it's an it's a really important innovation and certainly i think for any of us who practiced and trained mi you know uh you know feel would probably feel very strongly about that that i can't i can't imagine my practice now without that construct before i back to before i had it i feel like i was so much less effective as a therapist than as a practitioner and i think when you have something like that 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 you know, it, it's in, almost inevitable that it becomes, you know, that there's a pendulum swing towards it, right? That it that it, it becomes the, the thing, and and you, you, we then lose sight of its place in in a broader context, mm-hmm. and 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 maybe that's what really what we would like to be seeing is that kind of recontextualization, not losing it, but having it have its proper place in the broader milieu of, of MI practice. Alan, you're flying. It's absolutely beautiful. Because I, I found today that when I used reflection in response to change talk, it speeded up the process of, of, of receiving this shower and this person feeling acknowledged and heard. So it 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 was much better to use reflection in response to 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 sustain talk. I guess the key thing is my awareness of what it is someone was saying that it was sustained talk. Mm-hmm. And that's very helpful. Yeah. You know, and my awareness that at a certain point I might well dive in and say, where does this leave you now? And where where would yeah. you like to go? Yeah. yeah. And then exactly. And so it becomes a fit it, it, and it was an efficient conversation with somebody who was very distressed where there was a lot at stake it was an athlete a lot at stake in this conversation um and i think he felt very validated by me hearing exactly how demoralized and angry and upset and misunderstood he felt no yeah, question the goal, the goal of mi is not eliciting change talk it's helping people change yeah, exactly. It's important to know about eliciting, cultivating change talk as part of that, but that's not our goal. That's, that's very important. That's a method towards the end. Yeah. Change talk and sustained talk are just the two sides of ambivalence. So either you can you can say, oh, I'm doing it with change talk and sustained talk. No, you're helping somebody explore and resolve their ambivalence is what you're trying to do. I love the look, well, Andrew. That's still how I conceptualize it, Joel. I will never oh, let yeah. go of uh of, of ambivalence being at the heart of of how I conceptualize our our uh, and this guy that I spoke to today, where there were quantities of both, I didn't experience it as ambivalence. You see, but maybe I'm wrong. But he was just demoralized, misunderstood, distressed, and pessimistic. 
that's how he felt. He felt bad. Okay. Um, so yeah, there you go. And then it swung around. Yeah. But we we're well past the needing to be uh, mindful of what we say. Um, yes, we're well past the needing to be mindful of what we Joel, say. Joel, one thing for yeah. the future is to is to ask Alan and Chris and whoever else we can find what the link between MI and acceptance and commitment therapy. Oh, don't ask me well, that. that. Would be uh, I'm not the right person. We'll ask Chris, that. Chris is a guru on act. God, you're going to mess with me now. Joel's on a conversation thread where I just said, I just spent a month teaching act, and then I went to try to read a Steve Hayes article, couldn't even make it through. <laughs> <laughs> totally lies. I was like, what an imposter. I just taught something I can't even read. But. but I think we should want to give credit to, you know, the use of the word acceptance and what do they mean there? And I, I had a sports psychologist come to me today and said, oh, Steve, it's very interesting to meet you. Um, my my preferred way of working is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's quite widespread. And uh, it'd be quite yes. nice to understand what it is that, that is a value in it. And how would that would be a great webinar topic. Yeah. Actually. Well, maybe, yeah. We could, maybe we could look at something like, you know, people will also say, that solution-focused therapy and MI are a lot alike. And I know there's, you know, one of the differences. Uh, solution-focused therapy, I think, is the is a thing of the past, really, Joel. I mean, it's it's just kind of – but I think acceptance and commitment therapy is very much of the moment. And it we is. have lots of it MI is. practitioners and trainers who do both and who who really value, who see the 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 overlap. I'm not one of them, but I know we have many. And, and uh, I would I'm love, love to be a part of or at least listen to that conversation. Yeah, so for the last sure. years, I've been teaching a circle of uh, of approaches: MI, ACT, positive psychology, DBT, somatic therapies, and compassion therapies. Mm. Because I got into this habit for years of only doing MI, and I just started seeing everything as MI. The whole hammer nail, like, oh, I can figure out a way to call that MI if I like it. And so I wanted to start separating these out in my mind and figure out what really are the areas of overlap and and difference. Yeah, and then differences with ACT. And and Diane Slate is quite rightly pointing out there's a lot of process-based research, which is worth looking at. Then there's compassion-focused therapy, and there's a fella who fronts that who will come on to this. I know him. We've communicated. I'm sorry. I've forgotten his name. Um, we didn't mint it Stan Steindl, but if you're talking about the – You might be thinking of – founder of more of a british there's a couple of british yeah. guys who are very yeah yeah they'll come on and help us with that so if we do that i would want to invite you to also consider self-compassion work which is adjacent to compassion focused therapy but is really a different model in many ways that's really super of course being in in sport you know guys people women and men beat themselves lucky up like you wouldn't believe, right? So if you ask them, what's it going to be like if you're only 75% today? You know, you what you're inducing is the sense of, you know, compassion for themselves. And they go out and perform better. That's my experience anyway. I'm a very concrete guy, Chris. I live in a very concrete world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, all right, we gotta go. Looks like yeah. Angela already's like, all right, I'm done. She left. Yeah, yeah no, she made me host. Thank you um, for the uh, for this opportunity to have this conversation. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I remember the three of us did something similar with Bill in England at Sheffield, but it yeah. didn't. I don't recall it as being. We didn't have this long. So. No, and we had we had. Uh, that's where actually I forget the, the gentleman's name the now. Person Center fellow was there. Yeah, we talked name. about the tribes of of that was the first time I heard that term, the tribes of of the person centered uh, field, um, and this idea of, of you know, these these subgroups within it. Um, uh, yeah, that was fun. I mean, it's, it's it's certainly been our you know for several of us, it's been one of our I think recurring uh, um, you know goals to continue to bring bring rogers and the person-centered world together and of course bill has adopted that to some extent as well by going to pce and giving those talks and we haven't i don't know that we've had a lot of receptiveness on the pce side on the on the person centered. It's, it's mixed uh yeah the couple that i've been to and presented it's mixed certainly you know because it feels like i think there's a competition for turf and like who's this they're new they're not really person-centered and they're a lot bigger than most of these approaches in terms of studies and reach so. i think uh, robert elliott talked about at last year's pce uh, uh he, he does all these analytic work on on psychotherapy effectiveness and client-centered therapy was looking pretty good but he acknowledged that the reason why client-centered therapy was looking pretty good was that there were a lot of mi studies in there and they were so from his perspective it would be uh included but Hmm. didn't didn't weren't you at one of the conferences chris where you were talking about a, a study maybe the uh the selman study where they compared met to person-centered or probably more of like an empathic counseling and somebody said who role played the person-centered counseling? it was it was bill presenting on one of terry's study where they contrasted uh mi versus the non-directive mm collective practice and the advantages of MI. And yeah, that was the very challenging uh, question from somebody in the audience. So who role played the person-centered therapist with the clear implication that like, you don't really know what you're doing. You can just pretend to do it. And so it's not legit. And actually, I think there might be some legitimacy to that, not to question what Terry and others do, but, you know, again, I think in the MI world, we tend to think of person-centered therapy as MI without direction, and there's so much more and different to it that's not even, you know, anyway. Did he ever use the word joy? Joy? Yeah. Rogers. Yeah, or Miller. We have, uh... <laughs> or Miller. <laughs> Well, I have to say the biggest emotional response I've ever, one of the biggest emotional responses I've ever seen from Bill was his reaction to the paper I did with Karen on positive emotions and positive psychology and MI. Hmm. I, I think this, you know, I, you know, I do think uh, there is another, I mean, this contrast is is partly characterological as much as anything else between MI and, and, uh, client center therapy right because rogers the form of of the classic you know rogers uh response was always you really feel right i mean the, when they did teach it as a technique it was 
start with you really feel and what really matters are the feelings. And, you know, when, when you watch, you know, Bill doing MI, you know, from the earliest demonstration, uh, it's very much more of a cognitive thought focused process. And, and I think that, um, and I think that's what allows MI to be uh, brief and to be focused and to do be all many of the things that, um, that, that we all appreciate uh, in it, but uh, it's not about the, the depth of feeling per se. Hmm. There's joy. Found a quote. All right. Uh, I love it. That's a great quote, Joe. I'm happy to stick on or go, whatever, Joel, you directed. Yeah, I, I, might, I probably should go. I have a meeting that I've, I'm late to, so, and uh, hap happily late to, but that's fine. <laughs> I should probably still go to it, <laughs> even though this is more fun. Lovely to be with you guys. I'm I'm going to go now as well, then. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so, 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 so much. Thanks, guys. Much for Chris. Thank I'll, you I'll for the conversation. Steve, Steve, it's really my experience kind of rare to, to be able to have conversations with people who are founders, co-founders, co-developers, who aren't so rigidly attached to the way they see things that it kind of takes over the conversation. You can't really, it's not really a just, you know, a mutual conversation. It's just people talking. And it's it's nice to actually feel the back and forth and, you know, you listening and reacting, even if it's, what was that face you made? It was a great face. Something either I or Alan was saying, I forget. And then, it was me. It was me talking about the, you know, the, the, the deep empathy. Uh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the moment. Entering another person's uh, world. Yeah. 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 The Not that it's value, Alan. No, no, no. I, but I, your point, I agree with completely, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the points where you say, we're not sure we did it right. I mean, it's just so good to hear, right? Because the danger of all of these things, I think, is they get locked into uh -huh. something. I mean, that's the... We could eventually have a splintering when you and Bill stop contributing, um, or we can hopefully have a way that there is some sort of umbrella that people can have different pieces under, and we'll argue, you know, as one of your, one of your feet on the outside of the line or not, but okay. we can have different tribes. <laughs> the oh, I think I think I heard you say Jeff Allison was on at some point, but I missed that. That's a jump off. You sent me an email because it, there's there was something else we could have talked about, like toward the end of Roger's work, uh, and particularly Gene Genland, who picked it up. And I don't know if Rogers totally agreed with Genland, but Genland was saying focus your attention on things that are unclear where the story is vague and is not yet unpacked because it's behind that where you can really help somebody. And it reminds me of some of what Jeff used to say about ambiguous talk, I think he called it. And mm. I believe he just presented on that in at the UK, Ireland thing. So, so, so happy to see him kind of back in the mix and talking yeah. with us all. I would love to hear that. Would have loved to have heard that talk, but yeah, the idea is, you know, part of his idea was, you know, find those things that are ambiguous and work with it and see if you can help somebody find change talk in that. Um, that yeah. it's not always clear if it's change or sustained talk, that sometimes it's kind of 
depends on how you hear it and you know what what you want back from it so yeah. all right well, see you alan have a good meeting thank see you, you. Have a, thank joel. you all so Steve, much have a good evening joel it's been a joy <laughs> it's been a joy yeah <laughs> Hope you get some sleep uh, somewhere in there, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. I already had six hours. <laughs> well, I, went to sleep, I went to sleep at nine o'clock. Are we done recording? And what oh, I'm going to stop. Anyway, we'll go before we veer off. Let's exit out of this. Are you sure you want to stop recording to the clock?